What's up? This is the beginning of something special. Who the hell knows? Alrighty, it's me, Michael Adkins. Why am I here, you ask? <sighs> Put it simply, I'm in my 20s, right? I'm in my 20s. I'm in a, I have in a creaky chair, alright? I don't know if you can hear it. It'll get bad, don't get me wrong. Alrighty, I got a car, plastic card table right in front of me. A laptop that kind of works but was hacked, you know, a couple months ago. And I had to re-wipe the whole darn thing, alright? Because that's just how society works, alrighty? It's not a fun time. Not a fun time right now. In fact, I'm going to open up some windows, okay? Just to get some fresh air in here because that's how upset I've been. I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. No, in actuality, the reason why I'm saying all this stuff right now is because I feel like I need to have a voice to something, right? And on top of that, I need to understand, right? Because this whole complicated world's in front of us, right? I'm taking economics to try to understand this world in my own way. You know, people people get into music, right? I was in um, Guitar Center just <laughs> just yes just a couple hours ago, actually. Um, you know, just talking about this whole, you know, what is the point of the of this podcast, but also what's the point of the microphone, right? What's the point of, you know, you know, how do people see, you know, the world through music, economics, math, whatever it may be. All right. Um, I know that was a little bit rambly. That's kind of the idea for this thing, though. I'm going to let it loose. I'm going to let it go. Anyway, so, no, my name is Michael Atkins. I'm, you know, currently 23, majoring economics, and I'm just kind of trying to figure the world out, as everybody knows now. Um, another thing that I'm trying to do, at least with, with this, is to try to kind of go through my own scientific thought process of, you know, why I believe something. And I think that's what a lot of, a lot of people fail to do, um, especially like, when I think of aunts and uncles, especially the ones that are always on Facebook all the time. I got this, this one aunt, uh, who, you know, she's in rural Pennsylvania, right? It's, it's enough people to where, you know, she understands you know, a little bit more than just, you know, here's what's going on in my little town. But the problem is, is that they all go down the same kind of rabbit hole, right? There's uh, this, this, um, actually, I'm going to talk about my uncle instead. Uncle, he's a mechanic, still in that area. And he, he kind of graduated as, as, you know, top of his class of mechanic school back in like the 1960s. Okay, he always worked on these really cool looking hot rod cars and he knows his stuff. He knows his stuff hand, uh, I don't know what to put, inside out. There you go. He knows his stuff inside out. And, you know, the, you know. I remember I'll, I showed him my truck. My truck's an 08 Silverado. And he showed me exactly what's going on with the truck. He said, oh, I, I understand why you have rust problems here. You need to replace this spring, you know, in the future. I was like, what the hell? You know, already know this the spring, you know, it wasn't just like the normal suspension. This was like some sort of really, really tiny thing next to the engine bay that I never knew about to begin with. I mean, the dude is is definitely intelligent, okay? But, you know, he's anti-vax, right? So he doesn't believe in the vaccine because, you know, a whole multitude of reasons. Facebook, maybe one thing, or, you know, the, the fact that, you know, his wife, my aunt, you know, was kind of like the main peddler of like, we need to, you know... Who needs the vaccine? Even though what's weird about it is that she's a nurse anyway, or used to be a nurse, so I feel like she'd be, you know, pro-science a little bit. 
but you know it's always like the vaccine is rushed or the or the vaccine it was you know was given money to somebody else you know all all these weird other avenues um, besides the, just the scientific fact that it, that the vaccine does work. I mean, it's not just a, a CDC thing. It's not like the CDC is controlling people's minds and such. I mean, there are multiple studies, um, and I could pull up if I wanted to, that show that the vaccine clearly has a really high effective, you know, rate, um, efficacy rate. I think that's what it's called, right? So I took Pfizer vaccine. I had a few COVID scares afterwards, right? Um, and I, and I definitely felt like my chest getting, you know, tense um, this one day, right? I remember coming down with a little bit of a fever even, but it was like a couple hours and it was right gone. And I really do think that that could have been, you know, a sign that I had COVID or was battling a really, really, really short portion of it. But because I got the Pfizer vaccine, you know, my body just kind of had its immune system and kind of worked the thing out. I know another person, you know, she got the same vaccine, right? And she had a much different story with it, right? Just after three days, you know, she she was really still feeling these chills in this, in this kind of weird fever thing. Um, and that was from actually getting the vaccine, right? So she went to a doctor about it. The doctor gave her her, her medication. You know, I, I forgot what exactly it was. Um, but, you know, she kind of grew okay with it. And then she got COVID after getting the vaccine. This was a couple months later. And she talked about the how, you know, for a solid week, you know, she she felt like she couldn't taste anything. She was having a fever, you know, headaches, all, all soreness, all these other, you know, symptoms of it. And I know she was telling the truth because I had COVID myself. This was back in 2020 before the, sorry, early 2020 before the vaccine um, came out. So I guess the whole, the whole point to that story is, you know, it, it does definitely help people, right? It helps people in different ways. It may not be you know, as effective for some people than others. But even from my own personal story with having the vaccine, you know, that's how I know that it's, it is effective. It does work. And so, you know, I asked myself, it's like, okay, well, how come, how come, you know, my aunt and uncles, for instance, how can I tell them, right, in, in the best terms of like how, how I know the vaccine works? Because usually what happens is a whataboutism. Okay, the whataboutism is going to be like, you know, I, oh, what about this one guy who's, I think it was like Nicki Minaj that said like, you know, her cousin's balls shrunk or something like that, or they turned blue, right? And of course, like, that's like the whataboutism, okay? What about that guy? And of course, you know, it's like, I don't know, I don't have anything else to say say to that because, you know, I never met this this person or whatever. And it's like, I give the studies to people, right? I can look up the CDC study, I can look up the, there, there was one done in the EU, oh, I think it was Cambridge, ah, god, I forgot, I'll have to pull that up myself, I don't want to do a little, little, hold on, I don't want to do that motion for the podcast itself, so I'm going to kind of ignore that part um, for now, but you got the idea, it's like there's definitely, you know, research, you know, that says that this thing does work, yes, it may suck for some people, I think the, the one that's kind of interesting is Johnson & Johnson, 70% effective rate, Right, but it's a one-shot thing, so that means people's reactions are are actually a little bit worse than the the Pfizer um, or Moderna, because even though the Pfizer and Moderna work a little bit better, and you know if you were to give them like all in one shot, it's it's you know really hard in your system because it's spread out. It kind of gives your body time to kind of adapt a bit more to it. Uh, but the Johnson and Johnson though, it's it's like a like stab. Here's one big shot. Hope for the best. And I thought that was kind of interesting, but. 
you know, that's why it's the third best, okay? It's not the it's not the best of the best, but I understand why people get it. Um but it's 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 you know, taking that <laughs> there's a car that just honked outside. Okay. Um there it's it's just taking that thought process of like how I understand the vaccine works and then applying that to other concepts. Right. So, you know, the other big concept is, of course, climate change. That's what everybody else is talking about right now. Um, and, and to be fair, I mean, the, the climate change has been going on since the 1960s, or at least that we've known about it since then. There were internal reports, right, that was given to the, I think it was the Johnson administration um, that said, like, hey, you know, here's here's this thing that's going on right now. There are there, are, there is more carbon being emitted in the atmosphere and it's like overwhelming evidence, right, that, you know, the temperature is increasing. There is more carbon being output. And then the question is now, what do we do about it, right? So, like, I, I thought it was kind of interesting seeing some Republican viewpoints, right? I mean, I, I'm going to say it right now. I'm a Democrat, right? But that doesn't mean that I don't think there's a lot of weird shit going on, you know, in the Democrat side of things, quote-unquote, right? Like, I'm not definitely... Not a fan of Biden. I I did I definitely did not you know vote for him during the primaries for kind of what I thought was going to happen with him. Uh, now, um, to be fair, a lot of that you know has to do with you know the outcomes that were caused. I thought a really interesting. Th- oh, I'm going to go off another tangent. I'm going to hold off on that. Never mind. Um, but okay, so climate change, right? So temperature is rising, and so okay, we have this this you know degree of of, of warming. Okay, one degree warming it's been since, I think it's since the 1800s. One degree doesn't sound like a lot. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because my neighbor, uh, Mark, he loves bringing up that fact of like, oh, it's only warmed up one degree. Why, why is everybody bitching and moaning about, you know, you know, this temperature? What's the big deal out of it? And so, you know, you can point to other things like, oh, well, the ice caps are melting and the sea level is rising and the storms are getting worse. But it's so hard to tell, you know, you know, specific examples of that, right? Because, you know, you see flooding and then somebody goes, oh, well, you know, this climate change is because of that flooding. And then, you know, then everybody else is like, oh, no, that's just a weather event. It's just a fluke. It's just a chance that happened, right? These one in 500 year incidents that we're seeing, um, you know, with, you know, either it's either extreme drought or extreme flooding is occurring more often. Right, there is scientific evidence to say that out in the west coast um, of the United States, pretty much ever, you know, past that, um, I think it's called 50 degree latitude line, that that, that line that kind of goes through the Midwest that splits the moisture from the Gulf of Mexico from the, from, you know, just whatever is out, you know, west. That line has not only been shifting further and further east, but that side, the complete west side of that line, the western half of the United States, is within a one in like 5,000 year drought. It is the worst drought there has been in thousands of years. This is on record there. Um, And of course, you know, I'm trying to put it into, you know, into words that is kind of like finite, so I apologize. Um, It's just just taking that information and asking us, okay, so here's, here's the evidence for this thing, right? And here's the evidence for warming. Right. So there is something going on, but I think people are almost kind of looking back from it. Right. Because they're going, okay, well, who cares now? 
right? So let's say there is that warming and there is that drought, there is the flooding, right? You know, why why else should someone care? And, you know, there's, you know, a couple of different reasons for it. one One thing that I thought was kind of interesting was in Louisiana, right? You have these, these people that will stay after hurricanes, right? So hurricane... Um, Whatever the the most recent one that came through was, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. It was category four. It was almost a five at some point um, earlier this summer. These people understood that there could be a severe hurricane coming. There will be, you know, severe amount of flooding, you know, that came along with it. Luckily, all the you know all the dikes and levees held up the way they were supposed to. So that's great. However, those people that did stay, I think it was like maybe sixty people, so not a lot. But it was very interesting just hearing them say, like, oh, you know, it's in God's hands. You know, I'll, if I make it, I make it. If I don't make it, I don't make it. And I looked at the, looked at them through this video, and I said, well, how come? It was a Vice News video, by the way, that, that showed this. And I and I was just thinking to myself, well, I mean, it's like, it's like saying, you know, God gives you a ladder, right, to, you know, or like a helicopter. Let's make it more dramatic. A helicopter where, you know, your house is getting flooded, flooded, you're, you're eventually going to get inundated up to the top floor of your house, and there's no, you know, no way you can escape, besides some sort of helicopter that comes down and gives you a ladder, right? And then the person just says, like, nope, I don't need the, the ladder, it's in God's hands now, right? Well, it's like, well, God just gave you the ladder, right? That is God's hand reaching down to you. It's like, I don't know how, how more concrete it has to get. Same thing with the vaccine, right? It's like, sure, there may have been one person that's died from the vaccine, okay? One person. I don't know who it is, but there's probably someone out there that had some sort of weird one-in-a-billion chance of reaction, right, to the vaccine, and then, boom, they died. And I think those people will look at it and be like, oh, see, I don't like those odds at all. And, of course, you know, you you hear this 2%, you know, death rate for, for COVID all the time. Well, the 2% is still 2%. I mean, you know, COVID's killed more people since all of the war, our wars previously combined, right? World War II, World War One, Civil War, everything, you name it. Um, and I'm sure someone's going to be like, actually, actually. So I don't know if it's actually the Civil War. Um, I'll have to look that up. But I, I know it's like in modern, modern history so far. It's definitely been killing, you know, more and more people. And also now that I think about it, COVID, I'm going to look this up. Too bad for the little little things. I think COVID has killed worldwide 4.87 million people. I think this is a very interesting t- statistic. Um, this is, of course, all about confirmed COVID cases. So the real number of coronavirus cases, it says right now it's at 239 million. I would not be surprised if it was like three or four times that, especially when you look at like rural Africa. There are some heavily populated areas in in Africa, like uh, Nigeria, for instance, has, I think it was like 145 million people in it. I know for a fact that if somebody gets COVID out there, the chance of them actually getting tested to see if they do have COVID or not is probably very slim unless you're in like Lagos or something like that. Um, so I imagine it's like five times that amount. And the deaths... I, I would think that would it be around five times that amount, too. I think that's that's a fair thing to say. Um, now, when you look at different countries, break it down, you know, U.S. definitely is, you know, recording their COVID cases much more thoroughly than, let's say, a place like, you know, India, for instance. Although India has been reporting a lot of, you know, COVID cases, don't get me wrong. Um, I think that's kind of what, where it fluctuates. But let's just say it's five times that amount. 
it's still, you know, five times, so 25 million deaths. That's still not as much as, like, World War II overall, right? So, you know, it's, it's I think, as a global threat, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. I think that's fair to say. However, with that 2% death rate, we have to ask ourselves, well, do we want to still save these people's lives, right? Um, and of course, people would say, yeah, let's let's try to vaccinate everybody and save people's lives. We look at measles, right? Um, you know, Black Death as well. I'm trying to think of like other, you know, world, there were worldwide vaccination efforts for some of these things. I forgot, I forgot of course, like which, which disease or what thing, I mean... Yellow fever is something that also comes comes to mind as well, where it's like we almost eradicated yellow fever because we got pretty much everybody vaccinated. There was this, oh man, I, I, I wish I, I remembered the actual disease, but I remember in India I found this study that said, you know, basically you'd have these t- these teams walking around and they were just giving, giving shots to random people in villages, right? They were just, you know, hey, um... Would you like to get vaccinated for this thing? And then, of course, people may go like, oh, no, I don't believe in that. And then they'd give them like a plant pamphlet, right? Here's a pamphlet as to why why you should, you're going to get this vaccine and should get the vaccine, right? And then the people are like, oh, okay, fine. This is this is 20 years ago I'm talking about. This isn't currently uh, speaking for COVID. So, you know, for those kinds of things, we had those worldwide vaccination efforts. They, they are proven effective, right? That's That's just how it is. So even though it's a 2% death rate, do we want another 5 million people dying from this thing, right? I mean, that is a serious, you know, number to think about, even though it, there may already be 25 million, do we want another 5 million people, you know, to get to get hit by this thing? In the U.S., that's why I don't understand. We had, so after the vaccine came out, by the way, worldometer, right, worldometers.info slash coronavirus slash country slash U.S., that's the data I'm using, I really like this website, but that's besides the point. So let's go to April. April, I don't know, April, where was it? April, April-ish, excuse me, 2021, we had 584, 585,000 deaths. Okay, and the reason why I want to say April is because that's when I got vaccinated. Um, now, to be fair, it was an essential employee, right? I work at a hardware store. I'm mi- mingling with people all the time. So I got vaccinated around then. I use I would use this this kind of time frame as like really when people in mass started getting vaccinated for COVID, but since then we've gone up to seven hundred thirty four thousand deaths. Right, so it's like so hundred an extra hundred thousand people more than a hundred thousand people died from this thing. I can do the actual math, but I'm too lazy for it. Um, okay, hundred fifty thousand people actually. And, you know, that's confirmed deaths, right? People have died from this thing. You know, do you, you know, I, let me look up car crash fatalities. That's another good idea. Car crash face Yeah, I can't, I can't do it yet. Um, but the point is, is that, that that has killed way more people, right? You know, than car crash fatalities now. Um, you know, within the past year. So there is definitely evidence to say like, okay, well, you know, these are all preventable deaths, in my opinion. Now, are you going to force somebody to get the vaccine and then have some sort of social unrest come of it? I don't know, right? When you look at what Texas has done, where they banned all vaccine mandates, it's like, well, is that also a right that you're limiting to people, right? 
shouldn't businesses have the right to say whether or not you know their employees can get vaccinated? I think that's a very interesting thing to think about, right? Because in California, it's like all of Los Angeles needs to get vaccinated, right? My my store in in Virginia, right? Everybody got vaccinated anyway, right? I know I know a lot of I actually knew a couple people who were able to fake their like vaccine passports, right? They're able to just kind of write like, oh, I have my little sticker thing, and here's some Photoshop. But the point still remains that we still all got, you know, vaccinated, you know, not just because we, we quote unquote had to, but it was kind of like more of like a, like a bump in the right direction. Like, Hey, come on, let's just get vaccinated. Let's get this thing over with. And I think that's kind of, I don't know. I think that's kind of crucial, right? Why, why sure you could have the right to die, right? Everybody has the right to die. I, I, I have a feeling deep down inside, you know, that, Really, if we could legalize euthanasia or something like that, we would. Um, you know, look at Oregon, for instance. They, they've been using euthanasia for the past 20 years, I believe. Um, you know, people have the right to do what they do. And plus suicides. People are going to suicide anyway, right, if they want to die. So if someone doesn't want to take the vaccine, you know, because they want to die, I think that's a different story. But it's for those people that are going down. It's kind of like a cultural rabbit hole of like, well part of my culture, right, and I'm, and I'm really thinking about, like, in the South-South now, um, you know, it's, it's like towns like that, you know, who are in the really deep South where everybody decided, nope, we're not, we're not going to get vaccinated. This is part of our, you know, cultural identity, right? I guess my, my question to all of that is if somebody came there and said, nope, you all have to get vaccinated, there would be pitchforks, right? Riots in the street. Okay, so I get that. But if people said you have to get vaccinated because if you spread this to somebody else and they die, right, you're going to be held responsible. I think that's another really interesting, you know, point too. If somebody could like, you know, look at like a super spreader event Right. If somebody who held the super spreader event, should they be held responsible for somebody dying of COVID after said event? Right. And then that goes into coronavirus restrictions. Right. Because then you'd say, I remember back in like, you know, April, what was it? I guess, yeah, April 2020, when like, like when it was first, first going on, um, you know, I remember there, you know, there were all these, you know, COVID restrictions. We can't have gatherings of more than six people and we can't do this and can't do that. Right. And then people are like, oh, my freedom. Oh, I'm, but, you know, something makes me wonder that deep down in the law, should there be something that says, well, if you do end up doing something like that, then it's against the law and it's, and it's violating the rights of other people to, to choose to like live or die right from, from the COVID. So I don't know. There's a whole spider web to all of that. But I guess the point that I was trying to say is that like, there's, there were a hundred thousand preventable deaths right, in the U.S. alone, more than 100,000, and, you know, we can go into whether or not the people were going to do it anyway, right, where, you know, get vaccinated versus not get vaccinated, if we did force vaccinations, people could just fake their, their passport vaccine cards anyway, right, so, of course, you know, you're never really going to know, but, I mean, hmm, I just think that we would have been better off anyway with those 100,000 people still around. 
that's another weird weird thing I think about the U.S. is like we could like 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 for instance let's let's look at like seatbelts right we could say everybody has the right not to wear a seatbelt they they could say okay well great now I'm gonna choose not to wear the seatbelt then and then sure enough you know they get into an accident and they get ejected from the window they die right that's happened many times before in this country so those are all preventable deaths that people could argue were going to happen anyway, right? Because people didn't want to wear their seatbelt. But it's weird because we still have laws that would say, you know, any, I think this is in pretty much every single town. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe there's like a couple towns out there that weren't like this, but I'm pretty sure this is in the majority of U.S. towns where it's like, no, you're going, you have to wear a seatbelt every time you get into the car. At least that's how I know for, for Virginia, right? Is that you, you know, if the, if the officer sees someone riding around without a seatbelt, they can get a ticket for it. If somebody is walking around not vaccinated, right, they spread COVID to somebody else, shouldn't they be held liable, right? I mean, I think that's kind of fair. Now, of course, you can't really prove it. That's the only issue is that, you, you know, contract tracing, all this other stuff. You can't really prove all that kind of, you know, that, that stuff. But it, it, it fundamentally makes more sense to say, you know, hey, listen, if you do this kind of thing and you kill somebody because of it, you should be be able to get so, sued and you should have all this other stuff, you know, thrown in your face because of it, right? And then you can say, you know, should somebody wear it be, you know, like let's say it's like a, like a wedding, for instance. Should everybody sign a form before they're going into the wedding, say if I get COVID from this, it's I'm not at, you know, I'm not going to sue anybody or it's not at fault. I don't know. I don't know. We're in a new normal, of course, but legally speaking, that's where I feel like we should be with COVID. It's more about if there is a real danger to other people, right, by you not being vaccinated and then you spreading the virus to somebody else, or, you know, you not being vaccinated, you spread misinformation to other people about it. In a way, I mean, that is, you know, worse for the public in general. If we, you know, freedom of speech is is an interesting example as well. Freedom of speech basically says, right, and I forgot which case it was. You can't sell, you can't just say, you know, fire, fire, fire in a crowded theater. And then, you know, force everybody to sprint out. That, that is the simplest form of saying, hey, you, you cannot have misinformation to the point of affecting the public good like that. And, of course, that's just a movie theater. Okay, that's not COVID. So I think that's a, it's a very interesting interpretation of the laws, at least now, that we're kind of allowing it to kind of fester like this. And I really do think it's because the problem has grown so big that, especially of, of misinformation, that nobody really wants to, you know, be held responsible for changing it. And I think that's a very interesting thing, especially for Biden, right? When you look at all the, you know, the negative, you know, why people dis, you know, dislike what he did, I think a lot of it was Afghanistan. But there was also a, a good portion of it where he, you know, basically said for everybody in the government, you know, you have to get vaccinated, right? You have to do this, and whether you like it or not. Um, you know, of course, people, my mom actually works in, you know, in the government. She actually works with people that are in control of monitoring, you know, whether or not you can fire somebody based off whether or not they get the vaccine. And a lot of, and a lot of times there's a loophole, right? Loopholes, you know, well, if they have a religious exemption, right, of some sort, you can basically say, I, I you know, the fan in my room whispered to me while I was running last night doing its little 
that, you know, that I, I believe, you know, now that the vaccine is something that I religiously cannot have, you can basically do that if you wanted to and still get away with it, right? So that's what most people are going to end up doing, you know, with this vaccine mandate anyway. But it's kind of interesting to see that, that reaction, that public reaction of like, oh my gosh, he's forcing people to do that? How dare he? And I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at, looking at you know, this whole situation in general, let alone a vaccine mandate. I mean, there there is also, you know, on, let me talk about the left. Okay. There is also on the left-hand side, I think a lot of times when it comes to identity politics, right? Dave, Dave Chappelle had a news special that came out. A lot of it would talk about, you know, transphobia and, and, and trans stuff. And basically his, his concluding story was about how, you know, a trans person, you know, was defending, right, somebody who, you know, was kind of saying stuff that wasn't so great towards trans people. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like, you know, like, oh, all trans people should die, but I forgot what exactly Dave, Dave said, you know, what, what that line was um, that he mentioned, but he basically kind of, like, pointed out, like, see, like, you know, here's how the, you know, the trans community is hypocritical, right, you know, about themselves, and there was this whole, like, online Twitter bashing going on with this this one trans woman who supported, you know, Dave and his views publicly, right? And she got bashed on Twitter for it. And then, you know, you know, a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, I don't know, time frame exactly, she ended up committing suicide. Right? Ended up committing suicide. And, um, sorry, I'm just trying to check, check in my time here. I'm okay. I'm at 20, 29 minutes. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, and so, ooh, what is, what are you? Oh, you're something else. Okay. Sorry. 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 Let me just go back to my thing that I was recording with. Still recording. So bad at this. This is my first podcast, of course, so bear with me here. Um, but it was this it was this trans woman who ended up committing suicide over this whole Twitter hate. And she eventually just kind of, you know, they've kind of concluded, I should say, you know, that the trans community kind of ate at her right, for not being, like, a true transporter to the point where she couldn't handle it anymore, right, and so she ended up leaving, leaving a a kid um, behind, and, um, you know, it was very emotional in that regard in the special. I, for me, it made me ponder about how, you know, especially on, on the left, right, when it came to identity politics, that tribalism still matters, right, so you could look at you know, those, those towns in the deep red South, right. Who are like, we're against the vaccine. We're against it. But on the left, there's also those communities as well. Of course, it's a little bit different, right. You know, maybe it's on Twitter versus, you know, in real life. Um, that's how a lot of, (laughs) that's how a lot of communities on, on like the left are like, I think we all get into these like, you know, rabbit holes of, I don't know how to put it, but okay. Actually here's what's a good, good left community. To make fun of, San Francisco. San Francisco is always a good one. It's always full of these these people, right? That are that are kind of like that, where it's like it's very tribalist in that regard. It's a different kind of tribalism, but it's still tribalism nonetheless. I think that's fair to say. Um, and there's of course you know many issues with really really large, you know, cities in general that are extremely left, right? One 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 example of this is of course homelessness. That's that's a subject, especially with economics that I'm you know, personally passionate about, I want to do more research into it 
and just kind of see, you know, is there anything we can do? I think homelessness is a very solvable problem, but it's just getting everybody on the same page of why we should give homes to the homeless and how to do that, right? And of course, everybody has a billion different answers to answer that question. Uh, my personal answer, and there's there's a lot more to it. So if if somebody, you know, wants to say like, oh, I don't, you know, there's this there's there's this other thing, this other whataboutism that you haven't looked at, that may be true. Okay, so I'm not I'm not gonna say one way or another if this is the, the right answer. But in my personal opinion, I think one of the things that we can do to help homelessness is actually create communities of saying, all right, you have your little tent village. We're going to make it kind of like a favela, right? Like a Brazilian favela kind of style where you guys kind of choose how you want to make your homes, how you want to, you know, set up your community. But we're going to limit you to, you know, this square, right? This square of, let's say it's, you know, I would say around 100 people or less. Um, you know, and I think that's a very crucial thing, especially in a homelessness community, to have a rather small community rather than a bigger one, is because one, it keeps those communities policeable if something really, really bad happens, and two, it allows that interconnectedness, um, you know, for people, especially at a hundred, that's, I think, just like the perfect size of people to go, you know what, we need to create a community, we need to create, you know, our own leaders of, you know, ranking, right, you know, who's going to be the lead of this thing versus that thing, and we actually see that a lot of times in LA, right, LA actually has, you know, not just Skid Row, but also there was this uh, very interesting community of veterans, it was another Vice, you know, special, of course, right, um, but it, but they were all, like, having, they all had American flags on, on their tents, right, and there was about 50 tents like this, um, you know, and they had their own chain of command, right? They had this one guy that was the leader. They had another guy that was like the enforcer. They had three other people that were all, you know, lookouts and, and watchers, you know, for the community, but also for each other. And, you know, they, they've had their own issues. Don't get me wrong. You know, one, one instance. Um, so after the special, t it turned out there was a, um, a murder of some sort. I forgot what exactly it was, but it was some like guy who was definitely off living in that tent village had a squall with somebody over something really, really simple, like a like a bowl or whatever, and then just kind of boosh blew up, right? However, I still think that those communities are gonna, you know, they're gonna experience that crime anyway. A and B, you know, if you made it a little bit easier for those for those people in those communities to, you know, stay there long term, not have to worry about getting pushed out, and also create a relationship with the police, which I know. God, there's a whole chapter in that of, like, whether or not should they self-police, should police come in there. I don't know. I'm still, I'm, I'm still learning that aspect of it. Um, but I think that would be kind of interesting to say, all right, here's a permanent community. And the, each community has their own rules, right? They figure most of it out themselves. And if those people want to do drugs, let them do the drugs. So that's another, you know, I think another topic I haven't heard really many people talk about. Let's say, let's say you have a community of homeless people. It doesn't matter where you are. Generally speaking, I think it was like 40 to 60% of homeless people in any given area are going to be on some drug of some sort, right? And so with drugs, it's always a chicken and the egg scenario of, you know, why, why they're on drugs in the first place. Is it because, you know, their life went downhill Right, and they were never able to really recover from this dime world spiral. Therefore, drugs are the only thing that keep them happy. 
right? I think that's also, that's one thing. Then the other thing would be, well, why are they down there in the first place? Why are they homeless in the first place? Well, it's because they're doing drugs all the time, right? So I think there's always going to be that chicken and the egg scenario with it. However, the question becomes, how long, right, can you create this cycle and repeat this cycle? And I think really part of it has to do with you know, the policing of these drugs in the first place. People are going to do the drugs anyway. They're going to do the drugs, right? I mean, you can't, you can't force somebody not to do drugs. I mean, you kind of can, right? And, and you know, especially if you're a job, we don't, we're not going to hire you. We don't hire people that take meth. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, and we can get into a whole you other, know, there's a whole other chapter as to whether or not companies to do drug tests as well and, and all that kind of stuff for, especially if it's somebody like, like a homeless person who's trying to get a job at Wendy's. Right, and then the people at Wendy's say you can't you can't do the drugs. Um, sorry, I got nose itch. Um, but I guess I guess the point is though is if they're already in that community, they're gonna have to do those drugs. They're gonna end up doing those drugs anyway, right? Everybody has their own personal cycle with how long, especially with addiction, how long it takes for them to get out of it. And I think there is always you know an answer for some people. Sorry. <laughs> I'd blow my nose for a moment. When I blow my nose, it sounds like a trumpet. Um, but it's like, okay, they're already they're already here. They're already doing this kind of stuff. Let's just let them be. Let them figure that out on their own. Um, and I really think a big step of that is just you know getting that stability factor figured out. Um, you know whether or not it's it's a it's a if it should be a public housing thing, should it be something that. You know, somebody steps in and monitors 24-7 to make sure they don't take any drugs, you know, in the first place. Um, I don't think so. So another interesting L.A. concept that's been kind of done are these ideas like tiny tiny house towns. I think they're very fascinating, these tiny house towns. So basically imagine somebody comes in on a trailer, right, and, and, and it's like a shed, right, like a, like a fully furnished shed. You get all your little trinkets you want in it. And they're always like these boutique-looking things. I, I remember seeing one in, in Oregon, not personally, just like in another video, um, that showed like this This guy had basically, I don't know how to put it, it was sick, right? It was like a cabin, right, that he made, and then he had his own like record player inside of it, right? And it was playing smooth jazz, and he was just kind of there just reading his book. Everything was like beige. It was like sepia, you know, right? I, it was very... um. What's the word I'm looking for? <sighs> hipster. It was very hipster. All right. But it was a good, it was tastefully done hipster. And I looked inside of this. I mean, there was like Edison bulb bulbs in, in the lamps and everything. I mean, this guy went all out. Okay. And so he, and he was just kind of sitting there like, reading this book all going. He's like, why, you know, and somebody asked like, why are you here? He said, oh, well, I'm a student going to university and I am, you know, I'm just here paying for whatever, you know, school I can, paying, you know, my way through school, you know, making, you know, with whatever job I can. And he was only charged like $250 a month for that place. And as a college student, I'm like, oh shit, that's kind of what I want. I want a place, you know, that's a little bit out, you know, out of the way from, from my parents' house and everything. And I can just kind of, you know, focus on my own self focus on, yeah, I have my job, but I can also focus on studying well and just kind of go in and out. But the key, of course, is the fact that every single day, people have to have these meetings for like an hour. 
So imagine waking up at 6 a.m. and then like 7 to 8 a.m. You're all just kind of sitting there and you're in your huddle of like, all right, we're all, you know, in this village together. Has anybody, we're going to all do drug tests and see if anybody, you know, took drugs last night. And then they find out nobody took drugs or one person took drugs and they get booted out. Right. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to keep, you know, keep, you know, talking about who's going to do the dishes. That's another thing. They have this communal kind of area to do your, you know, your, your toiletries, your kitchen, things like that. Right. And so I think that there's some aspects of it that make a lot of sense, but there's other aspects that don't. One aspect of it that, of course, makes sense is that it's a self-policing community. These are the people, the people that live there are the ones that, you know, are figuring out whether or not they should do, um, you know, X, Y, and Z for today or, you know, and for the week and so on. So that, you know, the, the upkeep is always going to be with them and, and, and whatever. But it's a fundamentally different community in my opinion, than one that's actually meant for homeless people, right? So if you, if you like I said, 40, 60% of these homeless people are taking drugs, right? You want to solve the homelessness problem. If you tell them to live in this community, and we've already seen this in other similar communities to that in Oregon and LA, you get booted out of there, you're back on the streets, right? If you end up doing drugs. And I think that's a very, very key should I say question? I don't know if it's a question or not, but it's a very key kind of standpoint of like, okay, are we really solving the problem, right? I would say it's not solving the problem. What it's really doing is taking, you know, it's like skimming the top of the homelessness population. And the reason why I say skimming is because these communities are few and far between A, right? So I looked at um, Houston, for instance, there were about 16 homelessness communities I found if you added all of the people that could live in these communities up, it came to around 2,000 people. And I was like, oh, sweet, 2,000 people, that's great. But I found out that they're mostly vacant. I found out that a large portion of these of these communities only allowed people to stay a couple nights at most. And a lot of times it's when there's like a really, really cold day in Houston, which is very rare, of course, a very cold day where people have to go inside, you know, and get heat you know, stay warm that way. But it's like, you know, a gym locker room is kind of what you're staying in. It's rough. All right. And there's, and, and by the way, here's, here's what I understand. Homeless people have, I think it's kind of interesting. Homeless people have the ability to leave a Google review. I think that's kind of amazing because you can look at the Google reviews for a lot of these places and it shows like two or three star reviews. Now, of course you ask yourself, you know, is that actually telling the truth of, you know, how many people actually go there? What's the real experience like? Of course, there's a bunch of factors that go into it. But some of the stories these people have are like, you know, they go in into these these places and the, and the religious people are like these like nuns. This is one example in Houston. These nuns would come by and they would basically steal your stuff without you knowing it. Okay. And they would tell, you know, it's very simple. Put all your stuff in this bag. Okay put your stuff in the bag. And then they're like, okay, we're going to have you, we're going to sit you down and we're going to have quote unquote therapy or, you know, and it's usually religious, you know, of some sort. So you're sitting there forcing a homeless person to like read Bible verses and go to mass and do all these other things when they're trying to get a plate of food, right? I think that's a very, very, you know, that's an awful way to treat a homeless person, right? Sure, they're getting food. Yes, religion is important, but the fact that you're shoving it down that person's throat in order for them to survive, 
is I think that's a violation of their their rights to just allow them to just kind of get what they need, no questions asked. I think that's you know, if you see somebody thirsty thirsty for water, what are you gonna do, right? Are you going to give them the water, right? Or you're gonna be like these people where you're gonna basically steal their shoes, give them the water, and then tell them, all right, you're gonna have to read the Bible if you want any more water from us, right? I mean that's stupid. It's stupid. And so, you know, the point is that sure, all these people can, you know, be housed, right? 2,000 people can be housed in these communities, but nobody wants to be housed in, in them because there's very, very poor conditions. And there there is differences, right? So I looked in, in Virginia, for instance, there's a lot of homelessness, you know, options available, but it's for a certain segment of people, right? It'll be like, you know, a mom of three kids who, you know, they've been camping outside of this homelessness shelter for the past two months, and they finally got off the wait list to get into this other place, you know, for this, you know, for this other resource. Um, and, and a lot of times it's a, it's a good thing, though. You know, it's like public housing, which is way better than, you know, just a shelter. Um, but it's, it's, it's still forcing people in, into this kind of position of, like, you have to be here for this long, you have to camp, do this. I was, so I was trying to get a townhouse the other day, right? And by me, I mean, of course, my, my parents and, and family, we're, we're all just like, okay, we want to get this townhouse. What's it going to take? A lot of times, because the the, hel- the housing, you know, crisis, I don't know if you want to call it a crisis right now, but the housing bubble is, you know, that we're all in is that real estate is super expensive. People are just, just begging. It's like, okay, I need a house right now. I'm willing to pay 30% more than, you know, the list price in order to get it. They told us if you want to get be on this list to buy this new house at this location that hasn't even been built yet, you have to come a year in advance, right? You have to camp, camp in an empty parking lot for a week, right? Because you need to be within the first 30 people in line to get these houses. That's ridiculous. And this is a night this is a nice looking house. So it's like why are we forcing ourselves to be homeless? to get a home. You see that? That's a weird, it's a, it's a, to me, that's still mind blowing to this, to this day to think about. Like you have to camp in order to get a house now, right? That's stupid. Nobody should be put in that, that position. Okay. Nobody deserves to be put in that position, but of course, capitalism, there's a shortage, you know, you got to work harder than all the other people in order to get it. That's just kind of how it goes son. you know, a little, what is it when you throw your hands in the air like, oh, I don't know. That's kind of what, what's going on right now in the house market, but whatever. So the point is with homelessness, right? It's okay. These people are already going to be in these communities anyway. They're already kind of stuck as it is. What they really need, in my opinion, is just allow them allow them some space to self-police themselves for a period of time, right? And let them kind of figure out how they want to run their communities. It's going to take a lot of time. Look in Brazil, right? Favelas. They're always going to have crime. Always going to have crime. There's not a single day, right, in any single Brazilian favela that I've seen um, that hasn't had somebody, you know, get shot or something like that. I thought Indigo Traveler had a really, really great example of this. Indigo Traveler is this guy on, on YouTube. He's from New Zealand. He goes to... All places all over the world. He went to Libya for a little bit, which was really fun. 
but he was inside, you know, one of these really famous favelas in Rio de Janeiro, the ones that's always, like, brightly colored and things. And every person he met, right, super, super happy to meet him. Oh, my gosh. You know, wow, you're from, you're from, you know, he had a guy, a translator, right? So it's like, wow, you're from, from, you know, New Zealand. That's amazing. What's it like there? Right. So, you know, very few people compared to here, he would say, right. And then they just kind of talk about their lives. What's it like living in this favela? Oh, I love it. You know, I, I have my TV here. I have this thing here. And, and of course you look around and kind of looks like a jail cell, but they always make it work. Of course, you know, there's this one guy had a little elliptical machine going. So, I mean, it's showing that the, there are ways that people are still getting enough money into these favelas to actually make it a very comfortable living, right? But the day after, right? Or sorry, at the very end of the video, it's like a 40-minute video. At the end of the video, he goes, I saw one of the worst sights I've ever seen in my life, right? And so he never really says exactly what it is. But the way he described it, right, in this video was like, I, he basically saw somebody getting murdered in the street. Right, by like a gang of some sort. And I thought that was a very, you know, very important tell of like, yeah, you know, there's gonna, there's poverty, there's people, you know, growing in this poverty, there's, there's you know, fishermen and just, you know, regular salesmen who are just kind of trying to make a living, you know, and just do their thing. But there's also that huge gang activity that is allowed to still kind of fester nonetheless, right, because of this massive community of people. It's like a huge network. Um, you know, that, that gains have, that can, you know, allow them to control, you know, that, that area in a really horrible way. So when we apply this to the U.S., we have this homelessness population. And by the way, I thought another really interesting thing. So L.A. total. L.A. L.A. is in the, the, within the city limits, I believe, is around 10 million people. I think, actually, no, it's 8 million people, and then there's, like, an extra 2 million if you include, like, Santa Barbara or, or so, I forgot, I forgot all of the places. It's weird because the, the LA city limits are super, super janky, but within those city limits, okay, there are 60,000 homeless people. So when you look at that ratio, it's less than 1%, right, of, of people, because I believe it would be, if 80,000 people would be about 1%. Of you know, eleven. I don't know, hold on. <laughs> Let me do this. Sixty thousand. We divide that by ten million. So ten million. So point oh oh six times one hundred. So less than a percent of people in LA are actually homeless. Now, does this number fluctuate? Yes. It. But however, however, I want to point out that this number was actually from the LA, um, it's like a, it's like a department that's all, all dedicated towards like urban housing and development in LA, right? It's, uh, um, they, they kind of go through like a multi-city council district level. So it's a little complicated because each one of those has their own version of like, you know, counting, you know, homelessness people and, and see what's going on there. And there's usually like, here's 8,000 here, here's 2,000 here, here's 10 here, right? It, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting. They counted four homeless people in Beverly Hills, like the the really, really rich area. And so I've always wondered, it's like, man, it still shows. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You can still live in Beverly Hills. I feel like that's that's a clever way of going about it. I don't know who those four homelessness people are, but they're doing it right. I feel like they if they made it to Beverly Hills while they're still homeless, god damn it. 
They're living larger than me. Okay, that's not fair. So the point is, though, is that you know, sixty thousand is actually a low number. Um, and now, relatively speaking, of course, it's bigger than what it was. Um, Skid Row has been doubling in size, right, since the past, since the nineties, even. Um, you know, so there is definitely, you know, I don't know if it's exponential growth, but it's kind of feeling like exponential growth right now, especially from COVID and shocks like that. Um, the fact that I said, um, really annoys me. However, it's getting better, right? These people, because there is that stability, they are kind of policing themselves more. Yes, the crime is bad. The crime's always going to be bad in these kinds of areas. So it's just a function of lower income. The lower your income is, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, your crime rate's going to be higher. Now, could that crime, that, that type of crime could be different. Don't get me wrong. So like in, in Mexico, really it's violent crime, especially like it, it'll be like in rich areas even. There's a huge amount of violent crime that goes on. And so, but that's like, that's like a scaling factor. Um, you know, in, in Mexico, at least, with with uh, income. However, if you look at, let's say, um, let's say Finland's a good example of this. Finland's a very low population density country in the first place. However, they do have, with their function of income, higher drug usage. I mean, who could have thunk, right? Part of this because of their cl- polar climate, though. They have much more drug usage, usage per capita than, you know, I think it's somewhere like, um, what do they compare it to in, my, in the study I remembered? Uh, even even compared to Germany, right? They had they had a higher you know drug usage you know per capita, but it's the uh, it's the same kind of you know pre- preference of like it's the crime is different, but the crime is always going to be a little bit higher, you know, or in scale, um, you know, for lower income than higher po- you know income people. So, you know, I think that when people are seeing you know hearing these stories of like you know people in LA shitting in the streets, right, trash everywhere. Yes, it is It is noticeable. Yes, it's bad. And there is a lot of crime. There's no, there's no doubt about that. However, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's not like it's, you know, it's not like it's a million homeless people, right? I mean, people can still get a house in L.A. Yes, it's pricey, but you can, you can still do it. You have to dedicate much more of your percentage of income towards one. And that, and that has a, a lot to do with, um, you know, just investment in general. And how how property works, especially in the U.S. Um, I think the idea of investment firms buying a house before regular people, especially when it comes to new, de- well, especially when it comes to old development, um, I think that's a really really dangerous thing to have happen. All these rental properties, right, of people making um, making for themselves. Graham Stephan, he's another kind of YouTuber, and he's a really really big. Um, how do I put it? He's he's a financial mogul, right? That people look up to. Of how should I, you know, live my life and make my money? So he tries to tell people how to invest in the stock market and invest in this thing and invest in this other thing and then the crypto and then. But it all comes down to real estate for him. I mean, that's really what he did. He got in to L.A. like early two thousands, bought a house really really cheap on credit. Right, and then just kind of okay, we're gonna really, 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 really work hard to make sure the house is really, really nice. Somebody's gonna move into it because the demand's always gonna be high because it's L.A., right? And then they paid off their debt, 
to the point where they were able to buy another house, right? They did rinse and repeat, right? And of course, they make it so these rental properties are more than the mortgage they ever pay, so they get constant income. For him, that's exactly what he did for the past 10, 15 years. His timing of it was really good, though, because it was right after 08. And I think that's another really crucial thing that, um, what was it after 08? I don't know. I know that most of his income was made after 08, but he could have made houses before then. The fact that that's, you know, all this other stuff about cryptocurrency and, and about, you know, trading in stocks and things like that. Sure, it's important, and he had some good information about that. However, that is his most significant chunk of income is through that real estate. And it was because of that that he was able to become a millionaire. He wasn't a millionaire to begin with, but he was able to have 200000 saved up, right? So he can get a loan on top of that 200000 to really make something, some use out of it, right? So he was a smart person. He was a smart businessman to begin with, but it wasn't because of, you know, stocks. You know, he did this one trade that really changed the world as much as, you know, I'm sure those financial people want to lead you to believe that, you know, that was never the case for him. So when it comes to, when it comes to making money in general, there is something to be said about investment properties, you know, really making an impact for, for people to get them out of, you know, out of, you know, poverty, I guess is one way of looking at it. Because let's say you have even a really crappy, crappy room in somebody's house and they're like, oh, I'm going to make a rental property out of it. Right. And it's going to be like a one bedroom apartment. I actually see that on Craigslist a lot of times. People will rent out one room, one bathroom as like a little studio thing at the bottom floor of someone's house. You know, call it 500 bucks a month. Right. 750 if you want a nice one. Right. People could still make that kind of thing work if they want to do that. And it does help, you know, the person, you know, developing it because they get income from it, right? So there is definitely incentive there. But on this much larger scale of where the house should go in the first place, I think that's where it gets very dangerous, especially when it starts impacting middle class. Um, you know, because of middle class, it's a, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, it's affecting me the most, so therefore I think it's the biggest problem. Okay, I understand that. But when it comes to, let's say, let's say, um, you know, somebody wants to make that rental property, should it be a company making that rental property or should it be an individual, right? With like a set of 10 houses or something like that, trying to make, you know, you know, a rental property. In my opinion, the system should be set up so that it shouldn't be this, these massive developments companies, right? That are making all the money you know, for themselves and then basically holding whoever accountable for it. It should be made it made so that on a much smaller scale, it works for everybody, right? And that and I'm sure that works with old construction, right? So, you know, houses from 1960 plus, I understand, you know, sorry, and by plus I mean negative, like before 1960, sorry. Um, like that makes sense. But when it comes to these older real estate, you know, you know, developments, right? Whole neighborhoods going up that look like they're all cookie cutters. It's really because a massive, you know, a massive company came in and was like, you know what, we're going to build 400 houses here, right? They build the 400 houses, people live in those 400 houses, hooray, right? But of course they make it so, you know, you put in different options. And here's the kicker with a lot of, especially, I found this was, this was kind of interesting. 
a lot of these like O O what was it like O two through O eight properties, right? So in that six year period of time when all of these loans were given out, you know, to these massive companies and to people, right? So they, you know, you could say, hey, here's your zero credit loan, buy a house. Those people were getting really shitty homes to begin with. They were like plasticky, right? They were kind of like an Apple product where it's bad after two years. Okay, it's the same kind of principle where after, you know, after 10 years, at, well, for these houses in this case, you know, there's always AC problems, you know, it turns out the drywall was running from the inside. And the only way I know about this is because my parents bought one of those cookie cutter houses themselves, right? Out onto a golf course. Oh, wow, it's such a great golf course view house. Well, we were only in it for, for eight months because it had a huge spider infestation we couldn't get rid of because the foundation was already crumbling at the seams. I mean, come on, right? I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And I think that especially when it comes to those larger companies making these kinds of houses, that's where, you know, that's where it really gets scary. Um, it's like, well, if you don't have a house other than that, right? If, if it's the case, especially where we are, where we have to go camping for a week, right? I mean, they basically could make that house whatever they wanted to, right? They, they could say, oh, yeah, there's an elevator in this. It was a townhouse, right? So... You know, oh, there's this, there, there, you know, here's an elevator inside this townhouse, right? And here's this, this loft that looks up. But if there was some really hidden stuff, right, that said, like, oh, there's actually this electrical thing going on, right? I mean, we would never know about that until the worst case, something happens, we're screwed. There's no other, there's, there's no other way of putting it. We would be screwed, right, if, some, if something like that happens. Well, it's not our fault. You bought the house. I mean, that's really what these companies are doing, and they're able to get away with it. And it's not just a regulation thing, in my opinion, right? So it's not just, you know, telling the builders, you know, hey, you need to make sure your your electrical wiring is, is done in such a way so you don't cut corners and burn this house down. I think it's more than that. I think it's the fact that you can make it so the builders know exactly where that line is in the regulation, right? And they also know where that regulation is not enforceable. And to be fair, because our society is so big at this point, it's hard to enforce those laws to begin with, right? Nobody's going to be knocking on, oh, let me just check inside all your walls for a moment and do this whole home inspection to make sure it's good to go. You can't do that, especially if you've already paid for the house before it's been built. And that's just simply how it goes here, right? So, you know, and it's like that in every high, higher income area. I mean, I'm, I'm sure in the Europe, it's, it's very similar with old construction, right? Where they do a retrofit on old construction and it's like, oh, for historical purposes, I think it was like in, in England, they have all these thatched roofs. And I heard that like the, th the thatched roofs are really expensive to repair. They're like a pain in the ass. Um, and of course it happens like because they're 800 years old, it's very historical and it's very annoying, you know, in that regard. Because A, you have to replace them, um, you know, pretty, pretty rapidly. Um, now, I don't know the exact number. It could be like a 15 year thing versus a, a 20 year versus a 10 year. I don't know. Um, but you know, it gets expensive because it has to be done in a very particular way. Right. And that's, that's, that cost is pushed onto the homeowner, which is kind of, you know, kind of like, Hey, come on, really? I mean, my house is 800 years old. Can you just make this a national landmark, but allow me to live in it? And then you guys do, do the rest of it. And then somebody's going to go, Oh, well, what about taxes? Blah, blah. So I understand that, you know, there is a need for new construction that isn't too good anyway, but, but when you make it so the market itself kind of pushes people, right, to kind of be funneled into, you know, you have to, if you do want to get an, uh, a decent townhouse, 
you kind of have to just say, all right, I think this is going to be decent. Here's my money. Hope for the best. Suckle somebody's tits, right? Whether it's a, you know, a massive corporation or just the guy above you. You got to have to do that, right, in order to live. And I know that's that's what being adult is kind of about. And that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out because I'm 23 after all, right? And so I'm sure somebody who's 40 or 50 listening to this is like, well, yeah, that's kind of how life works, buddy. You know, a little pat in the back. Good luck to you. I think that that doesn't mean that we, you know, we can't find ways to fix that kind of problem. I think one solution, for instance, would be making a, a type of house, right, available to everybody in a certain neighborhood, right? So I, I know that sounds weird. Basically, what I'm trying to say is let's say you have somebody who's just around the poverty line, all right? They should be able to say, all right, I want to live in an area that's safe-ish for my kids, right? And, of course, there's going to be sacrifices as to what size house you're going to get then, of course, and what you know what the house is going to be like. So maybe they'll, they'll say, like, oh, I'm going to get a crappy house, right, that barely has any electricity or something like that. Um, I actually know somebody where they actually had to they, – they have the lights that they'll turn off, um, you know, past a certain hour in the day. This isn't, this isn't Woodbridge somewhere. Um, where these, these people are just kind of like, well, I know it's this time of the day where I don't, I'm not going to have any power to the house. So that's just how it works. You know, I'm glad it's cheap here, you know, a little, little shit eating grin. Um, so there's definitely stuff like that out there, but it's like, okay, well, I think these people again, need that kind of basic right to electricity to have, you know, to be successful in that safer area, right? If it's a good school, they need the electricity for, you know, to, you know, schooling, right, one way or another. And then on top of that, it's just good for entertainment. I mean, if you're poor, that's one thing you're going to want is some sort of entertainment besides drugs so that way you're not pushed to drugs to begin with. A lot of time, that's just just free content you can get, you know, on the Internet. That's what most people do anyhow. Um, you know, look at look at mobile phones. Some, some you know, developing countries in Africa, there, there are people where... I think it's actually a pretty good set of the population where as long as they're able to afford the phone, that's all their entertainment. There's your Facebook, there's your YouTube, there's your blah, 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 right? So, sorry, that was a, that was a screaming breaks, screaming breaks on a school bus just now. Coming to, to deliver specialty stuff to the kids, I guess. Um, but I get the idea, right? It's like, it's like, you know, we, we can definitely strive to be a bit better in that regard, for people of that income level and we should make it so you know yes there's going to be there's going to be added cost to either the people you know or the people making the house or running those places to make sure that those things are operable right but we kind of have to have that happen in order for those people to be successful and for them to you know, have more success in general to, you know, get out of that situation. It's like, a, again, a chicken and the egg situation, except now it's reversed, right? If you want people to get better, you need to give people resources to do that. It's not like, you know, people don't have the resources and then you tell them, well, if you want to get better resources, you better do better. I mean, there is there is definitely, you know, it's like an inflection point. There There is past that inflection point, you know, you know, rhyme and reason for that, especially if you're middle class trying to be an upper class person. Yeah, of course. You know, if you want to get that Ferrari, you got to work for it. There's no doubt about that. Um, but when it comes to people who are barely able to do, to make anything, to tell them, well, you got to work a lot harder in order to get there. 
I think those people are already working hard. I know somebody who's taking these really awful hours at, at UPS. I mean, we're talking like midnight shift to like 4 a.m., right? I'm sorry, midnight shift to 8 a.m. That's what it was. Um, it sucks. That sucks. Okay, I don't care who you are. That's terrible. All right, and of course the person's like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine with it. It's just, you know, just kind of how it goes. I go to bed early and then and then whatever. I, so like, I understand that, but it's it's the same person who has their, their you know, lights turned off, right? They have issues with their family at home. You know, they're, they're having a hard time just making ends meet in general, you know, make, making sure that they have space away from their family because they, they don't feel safe around them. Right. And so, you know, I think it was because the dad was abusive in this case. Um, but it's like it's like, OK, well, they should be deserve that deserving of the electricity. They shouldn't have to pay more for that electricity, in my opinion. I think that's a fair thing to say. They should have access to clean water. Right. They should have they should have at least some access to say, like, all right, I'm at my UPS job. Let's make it so I can have a week off every every two months of paid leave right so that i can actually have room to take care of my siblings that are in need in that family too but they can't do any of that right now right because they'll lose the job anyway so what should they just work harder quote unquote in order to you know eventually get the leave and all this other stuff no that's not how that's not how it works for them they're not able to do that they're just they just want the stability they have the job already they're already working these shitty hours or to make the income they need in order to get to this, you know, other level, right? So they're already kind of, you know, screwed to begin with. So why are we trying to screw them over again, right? And so it, I, I think this this brings up the, ah, um, oh man, it's this curve in economics. It's such a great curve. I don't know if it's the Kuznets curve. No, no, the Kuznets curve is something else. My bad. Um, it's in it's in poor, poor economics. I think that's what it's called. That's what the book is called. Um. And so, and just talk about poverty trap. That's exactly what I'm trying to explain here. It's a poverty trap, where that there is that inflection point. Now, inflection point is different for everybody, right? In the U.S., it may be higher up or lower down compared to another developed country, or maybe way lower down compared to somewhere like North Korea, where you basically have to be born rich in order to be rich, right? So, you know that that point's always going to change for people, but it's still there, and it's still something that I think that a lot of countries, especially the U.S we could be fixing, right? And it's and, and to be fair, we are, you know, every state has different versions of, you know, ways to help people in poverty. But it's like, it's like we can work on this. There's definitely not, not a, you know, a way we can't do it. I think the idea of like minimum wage, for instance, is kind of interesting. When you look at this, these broader things of like, should we bring minimum wage to $15 an hour? Well, if you go into Wyoming, right, you don't really need a 15 hour minimum wage. It'd be nice, but you don't really need one. However, it still makes people's lives easier for the people that do have that higher minimum wage. What I don't understand is, well, actually, not. I shouldn't say that. I'm going to say 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 a different way. So, the recent economics Nobel Prize was given out. Oh man, I definitely need to look this up. Unfortunately. Um, it's basically talking about how, you know, in the 1990s, right? Uh, Nobel, hold on, Nobel Prize. I'm just sorry, I can't think and type at the same time. I'm not really good at I'm good at that part. Um, 
All right, press release here. All right, so Nobel, Nobel Prize in Economics. This was very recent, I believe. I don't know if it, if it was like last week or a couple days ago or what, but it was it was given out to um, David Card, Joshua Inks, and and a uh, Guido. Is it just Guido? I thought Guido was like a like a term you're not supposed to use towards Italian people in New Jersey. Anyway, Guido. Ebens um, from Stanford, and so it was always about the, just figuring out natural experimentation. Now, a lot of this has to do with econometrics, figuring out a causality versus um, correlation kind of thing, and a lot of this has to do with omitted variables and other things. And basically, they figured out some sort of way to basically show that. Okay, here's here. I'll just read it exactly as it says. It shows that these people have provided us new insights about the labor market and shown what conclusions about the cause and effect can be drawn from natural experiments. Their approach has been spread to other fields and revolutionized empirical research. So, basically, what this this is trying to say here... In the, okay, so yeah, here it is. So, so card studies from the early 90s challenged conventional wisdom, leading to new analyses and new insights. The results showed, among other things, that increasing minimum wage does not necessarily lead to fewer jobs. We know now that the incomes of people who were born in a country can benefit from new in immigration, while in people who immigrated from at an earlier time risk being neg negatively being negatively affected. Sorry, I'm gonna wait for that. Oh my God! Why is it now that the trash truck comes? All right, I don't. Uh, are they even gonna pick up my trash? No. And of course, my dogs are were barking at old people the whole time. Whatever. God damn. You know the people in those trash trucks? They like floor it going through a lot of these areas. Okay. Anyway, so all the all it's trying to say though is that basically they found a way to kind of show the causality of why um you know some some people are negatively affected versus others um and again the key is right people who immigrated in early earlier time risk being negatively affected i have to read that paper to understand exactly what it means but what it does show is that raising the minimum wage does not always lead to fewer jobs so it's not like you know the supply and demand theory that has long been suspected this is something that i was taught even in my economics class about basically, if you raise minimum wage, people will have fewer jobs, right? Because, you know, the, the business has to, you know, still make the same amount of money. What this is basically showing is that, oh, here's another thing. So, it also shows that it wasn't just, you know, just, you know, a job versus, you know, non-job thing for raising minimum wage. There were other ways, right, you could, you know, have people pay for it. One thing was raising prices, I think that's fair to say if you're especially going to raise minimum wage, you're going to have to raise, you know, your prices for a lot of things. However, this comes into your customer base for what that product may be. When a lot, a lot of minimum wage jobs come down to the service industry, right? I don't think I don't think I've seen any like manufacturing jobs that make less than twenty an hour, especially if it's something that's pretty damn good. So I don't I don't see manufacturing jobs being affected. From raising minimum wage, 
and also union unionship as well. But when it comes to like those fast food service jobs, that's what I think of when raising minimum wage. They're basically saying that those, you know, the prices in those fast food areas increase. Who's buying the fast food? Usually it's people who can afford to buy fast food, right? So it's not, it, you know, it's, it, it's a question of are those people still going to buy the fast food? Maybe they'll buy a little bit less than that, right? But let's say you, you do increase the minimum wage $15 an hour, especially if it's from, I think, I think a fair question is like, okay, where, what are people being paid normally now? Are people being paid minimum wage? If so, where? Virginia doesn't, you know, is still minimum wage is, is seven twenty five, right? Usually speaking, depending on your area, it's kind of it's gone up to ten dollars an hour at least. Um, especially in in my area, it's like that. Where I remember when I first started out, ten dollars an hour, right? And then I slowly got up to thirteen. I'm at thirteen fifty now for this job. And again, it's a part time job. I'm gonna be working on things larger larger than economics, of course. Um, but, you know, all that aside, the point is, is that if it was raised to $15 an hour, I would go from thirteen fifty to 15 right? I already know my store can pay for it. The question is, are they going to, you know, reduce their number of jobs for people working there? Maybe, like, if it was, like, any sort of extra jobs needed, then maybe, but generally speaking, they're just going to raise the prices anyway, right? And people who come to the store looking for our products... It's okay if they raise the prices because they're going to... Sure, maybe they can go to Home Depot somewhere else. I work in a hardware store, but, you know, they can go to Home Depot somewhere else to get the lower prices, quote-unquote, but we still provide enough services to where it's still going to be, you know, okay, here it is, fine, whatever. And and also, inflation's always going to be, be there anyhow. I mean, the price of steel went up dramatically, right? So I remember in, you know, our nuts and bolts section, we had a, a screw go from I think it was nine cents to twenty cents a piece, right? So so more than doubling price, but of course they kind of use that as a way of saying, all right, well because of the inflation now we're going to be able to change things a little bit, and and also that has to do with supply issues as well. So it's not just you know a printing money thing; it's also a you know a shortage of steel in general because of people gaming the price to begin with, right? That's just kind of how it goes sometimes. Um, so there's some, something to be said to that, um, but still, it's it's definitely not not cheap a lot of times. I'm gonna sip water. Sorry. So, you know, raising the minimum wage, I think that it's going it would affect jobs, especially in my area, my hardware store. But we're still going to end up hiring people because we still need to be a business. We still need to to run and do our thing. And so that's why I think I think this that's what, kind of what this this Nobel Prize is basically saying from all this research is like look we we did enough to figure out how all these other factors influence this one outcome right and and a lot of that comes down to econometrics where am I at oh my god I'm at an hour and 18 minutes talking about this shit amazing anyway I'm going to wrap it up soon don't worry um, but that's the idea is like, you know, there, there are ways to figure out, you know, why one policy, right, is going to be good versus another policy. And of course our science is constantly evolving. And I think we're in this kind of this new chapter in our society where we're seeing the science of homelessness. We're seeing the science of minimum wage, you know, the vaccine, 
uh, climate change, right? You name it. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Ah, I just realized. I think I forgot my final, like, my final driving home point about the climate change thing. Oh, man. All right, my final, just my final point that I was going to say with that. Republicans, they want to make it so that, you know, you, you're led to believe. Oh, man, I don't even like the way I premised that. Basically, the argument in general that there's only been one degree of climate change rise so far, even from this hard science showing that this we're going to have an exponentially increasing temperature from our exponentially increasing CO2 output, shows you know that, that one degree, oh, it's, it's not too big of a concern. It's like, okay, well, it hasn't been too, too big of a concern until now, right? And then now, from the next 100 years, it's going to go up another 5 or 6 degrees. So shouldn't we be seeing, we're going to eventually see a five degree, you know, temperature rise. Maybe it's five times worse. I don't know. It, it, it probably be even worse than that. Maybe a hundred times worse climate change than now, right? But it will be much, much worse, exponentially worse, and it will continue to grow exponentially worse in the future. That's how climate change is going to, is going to be. Simple as that. People may want to argue one way or another about, you know, oh, the climate change right now isn't too bad. But that's always the issue. It's never, it should never be a now thing. It's going to be a future thing from now on. I don't understand why we're bickering over the now. That's how, that's how the vaccine also works, right? This, if everybody just got vaccinated back in April, May, whatever time frame was, we would, we wouldn't have to worry about these extra 100,000 deaths. We could have just gone back to... You know, back to normal, normal, right? Oh, 99% of people are vaccinated. Oh, only 70% of efficacy, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter, right? That would have been enough to have herd immunity, and we don't have to worry about COVID ever again, right? But we're still worrying about COVID now because not, not everybody getting vaccinated, right? I mean, I think part of that just kind of blows my mind. Oh, my rights. Oh, my this. Oh, my that. Stupid. Stupid. Anyway. All right. I think that's going to conclude my first ever episode here. I can't believe I made it this far talking about random stuff in a semi-coherent way. I hope you all have a good one. I'll see you around. I'll see you when my dog stop barking. I don't know if you can hear that, but they're, they've, they've definitely been barking for a while now. So, anyway, see you later. Goodbye. Love you all. Michael Adkins, signing out.